This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. 2022 was a big year for climate disasters and policy, and this year promises to be a banner year as well. There are many areas to watch, including climate-driven weather events bringing too much and too little water in the West. You can argue you have senior water rights, but if the water's not there, it's not there. Environmental justice efforts are finally seeing some big federal backing, but will it reach frontline communities in the ways they hope? I also like to see that communities of color and poor communities and rural communities are not just relegated to failing septic systems. And when we get more water, whether it's in California or Alabama, when it gets a lot of rain, these systems tend to fail. Meanwhile, the outlook for innovation in a new energy future looks promising. A lot of what we see companies doing is creating what will be a better version of what we have today. What we're watching in Climate Now, up next on Climate One. Today on the show, we're teeing up a bunch of topics we'll be watching in the coming year in the climate realm. And there are a lot. For sure. Let's remember that 2022 was a huge year for clean energy. For decades, the focus has been on getting major U.S. climate policy in place. Now that's happened with three big bills, the IRA, infrastructure and jobs, and CHIPS. Now the focus has turned to implementation. The overall question is, where is the money going? Where is EV charging being built? What companies are getting Department of Energy loans? Will we get more highways or more transit? Yeah, there's a lot to see play out this year, especially after the midterms and a new Congress taking session. We're watching to see how much politics at the local and national level affects climate progress and action. Right, we talk a lot about the national, but most of the money flows through state and local governments. And actually, some of the biggest beneficiaries of the new federal spending are the districts of members of Congress who oppose the IRA. I'm also keeping an eye on the climate impact of the Farm Bill that could support no-till farming, cover cropping, and other practices. Yeah, next week we'll bring listeners our conversation with U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack about climate-smart agriculture. And after talking with him, I'm still wondering how long we should keep subsidizing corn ethanol when EVs are taking off. And that's going to be rehashed this year with the renewable fuel standard. What else, Ariana, are you paying attention to? Well, living in Arizona, I'm very focused on the water shortage on the Colorado River and what it will mean for users like myself. We'll be getting into that today with our first guest, Felicia Marcus, here in a couple minutes. Aside from that, as a consumer, I'm pretty excited by the Inflation Reduction Act money and looking at some of those incentives like getting my first electric vehicle and maybe even looking at solar. Though I have to say that it can be confusing and it's a bit overwhelming to navigate these different rebates and incentives. And it's not all in place yet. Some of the money is moving through states and needs to kind of be set up. And then there's the supply chain itself. Because, for example, I ordered an induction stove in December and it still hasn't even shipped yet. Well, I was fortunate to get mine. I've been cooking on it. I also want to mention a moment of falling for exaggeration around childhood asthma and gas stoves that broke into the national conversation recently. That really fed into a pre-existing narrative that I was kind of primed to accept that without really checking it. And I was really impacted by Andy Revkin, longtime climate journalist, writing, quote, The gas stove's news blitz is media whiplash at its worst. Strategic drama created by anti-fossil organizations. That really stayed with me. Yeah, and it's not to say that there aren't lots of good reasons to get away from gas stoves for climate and health reasons, um, but maybe that link between childhood asthma and gas stoves is not as clear-cut as some of the reporting was making it sound like. There are several more major topics we're keeping an eye on this year. We'll touch on those a bit later in the show. For now, let's jump into your interview with Felicia Marcus, a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program. 
snowpack and rain in many places are double normal at this time of year. What's it been like for you? And is this going to bust the mega drought in the American West? It's a mix of glee and um, self-correction. So it's fantastic. You know, I've, I've gone out in the rain. I've looked, you know, turned my face toward it, you know, and said, thank you. Um, because I, I know how important this is for all the parched areas of the, the state. And it's, it's not just the Sierras. It's, it's, it's the Colorado basin too, which is also getting massive precipitation, but it's always tempered by knowing a little too much. The drought's not over, you know, too early for a drought's over party, but it's a great start but it could get hot. And if it gets hot, it could melt and it could flood people out and we could end up in the same situation we were last year where we thought we were in good shape and then the tap turned off. So you never know what's going to happen. So it's hard to just be gleeful. The next thing we turn to is when do we get more of them a little later in the year? How do we make sure we space them out so that they don't flood anybody out and hurt people uh, and uh, property? So there's just all those thoughts, but it's it's underlaid with a, a glorious amount of happiness. What lessons does the American West need to learn from this biblical deluge in terms of capturing all this water, et cetera? What do we need to learn from this? There are two things. One is, I think, to be humbled by what we don't know about nature and that we can't we can't look at the ha- last hundred years as a predictor of what's going forward, as we have kind of naively, because in you know the geophysical record, we know we've had 40 and 400 year droughts and we've had biblical era <laughs> floods. And so I think it's a, a wake up call to be both grateful for all the precipitation we get and to use it wisely to get it into the ground, but also to be far more precise on how we use it for agriculture and in urban areas, uh, not hemorrhaging it on um, lawn, green carpets during the middle of the summer, let alone a drought. There's a lot we can do buttoning up leaks. So using it more precisely when we have it and getting it into the ground as much as we can when we have it, but also preparing for floods. And I really think it's finally taking hold, but it's not just building more dams, it's getting it into the ground. And the way to get it into the ground isn't just it doesn't go into the ground as fast as it does into a, a reservoir, but we can never build enough reservoirs to match the size and scale of the of the groundwater basins we have. It's doing things like setting back floodplains, uh, uh, nature-based solutions where we allow the water to flow out over a large area, which dissipates the storm force. It has flood prevention because you're getting it away from urban areas that right now are right up to these flood walls and levees, uh, and then you're giving it the time to sink into the ground. I mean, there there's so much we could do to both capture it more intelligently for multiple benefits and then use it more wisely uh, over the course of multiple years, not just year to year. And this, the rains in the West recently have been very fast moving, just, you know, storm after storm after storm, atmospheric river after atmospheric river. That's a fast moving crisis. Other water crises move very slowly. We're at a reckoning point on water supply for the Colorado River. The two reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are at historic lows. And if more isn't done, Lake Mead is in danger of reaching Deadpool status within a couple years. That's when levels are too low to be piped out of the reservoir. And that also threatens hydropower. How significant is this? It's massively significant. It's like the there's a 
a Barbara Tuckman book called The March of Folly that you may recall I'm very fond of. And it talks about how public policymakers, kings sometimes, and um, presidents and uh, others other times, um, have all the facts they need to deal with an issue. And they somehow ignore it uh, for a variety of reasons. King, King George <laughs> losing the colonies being a prime one, the Vietnam War, all kinds of examples where you had all the facts you needed to make a different choice, and yet you didn't. And in the case of the Colorado, which is a, a structurally somewhat dif- different than our Sierra system, which is a lot of short rivers, in the Colorado, you've got this massive river that goes through seven states and has these huge, huge reservoirs beyond the scale you could ever have in California. And we've been watching go down for over 20 years. And there have been really pretty impressive agreements among the seven states and water agencies that have forestalled, you know, this, this dire state of affairs for about six years. So they deserve some credit for it, but it's not enough to deal with the, uh, Armageddon-like consequences of getting to the end of that very predictable chain of events with hydropower going out even sooner than getting to, to Deadpool and um, this this crisis point that we've gotten to where the federal government has had to step in and say, look, either you come up with something or we're going to impose something you're not going to like. And in the in the meantime, you have the player's and I'm not going to blame their lawyers because I'm a lawyer, but sometimes you can be a little too clever by half to argue whatever your argument is vis-a-vis everybody else, where you're all going down the drain, to use a bad metaphor for this, where this is a classic thing where you either have to hang together or you hang separately. And you've written that the dwindling water from the Colorado River and the Sierra Nevada mountains are going to force us to make structural changes that have been put off for decades. Does that mean reforming senior water rights? What other hard choices might actually get made because of the dwindling water supply in the West? Well, I think some of it will be reforming water rights uh, in the long run. In the short run, in an emergency, all bets are off in terms of those traditional arguments about water rights. I mean, you you can argue you have senior water rights, but if the water's not there, it's not there. You can argue you have senior water rights, but if it's going to devastate the entire state of Arizona or do something particularly damaging um, to infrastructure, like make the pumps cavitate, which can destroy the facilities, then there are emergency powers that the federal government has in the state context in the Sierras that we've used where you get to step in and say, well, that's just not reasonable. And you can, you can trump it. So you can argue that that is a part of the water rights system, but it's a pretty radical step in the, it's certainly in the federal context. And yeah, there'll be litigation, but the federal government's going to have to do something. So what do you think, and we're looking ahead this year, I know you're a lawyer, not a uh, forecaster, but how does the Colorado play out? Do the feds come in heavy? Do the states make the hard choices they've avoided doing so far on, on sharing? You know, how does this end? Well, it'd be a little of both. I think I think the feds have to come in strong and not back off. And there are some state players, uh, particularly the director of water resources in Arizona, which is the most junior. So it's not totally surprising, but it's still helpful, who says that the feds have to come in to be heavies in order to give the political will or the cover to the states to make hard decisions that they can't make on their own. Because politically, they can't just give water away. No one can. So it's like any negotiation where you need the 800 pound gorilla in there 
that everybody can point to to say they made me do it because we'd rather shape it than have them, those knuckleheads, do it. We, we have one other benefit, though, this year in that in the a tool in the Inflation Reduction Act by the administration gave four billion dollars to the Department of Interior to help help with this. And it's going to be very helpful. So I think something to watch is how they spend that money in a combination of structural, meaning buy out someone's water rights in a more permanent way, pay for it, not take it away, pay for it. Temporary, meaning let's buy ourselves some time and buy some water for a year or two or three, and they have different prices set. And then a chunk of money that can be used for the Salton Sea. And they've talked about 250 million to help stabilize the shore and do other things on the sea so that you're not putting the Imperial Irrigation District, which is the most senior water rights holder on the Colorado, with the biggest chunk of water, an impossible choice where even if they wanted to sell some of their water, they can't without hurting their own community by speeding up the drying of the Salton Sea, which is fed by their ag return flow. You've mentioned money from the Inflation Reduction Act. There's also the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that includes $50 billion for drinking water, wastewater, storage, conveyance. How is that going to impact what we're talking about? That's a lot of money over five years. I don't know whether that money can be directed towards this area. I do think it will be in terms of some of the big recycling projects that are going on, like the Metropolitan Water District has an enormous one, 150 million gallons a day that has partners as far flung as Las Vegas and Arizona, which could allow for, you know, where uh, Las Vegas and hopefully eventually Arizona, the, the central Arizona project or the state will put some money in to help build this expensive facility, which will allow Met to more graciously allow the use of some of their direct from the Colorado river uh, allocation. Let me just jump in and say that Met is the water agency in Los Angeles, the huge water agency. Well, it's Southern Southern California California. overall. It is the largest wholesale water agency in the country and and really one of the major players on the Colorado River. And so uh, there's some very exciting partnerships going on. And and those certainly uh, hope to get funding out of the 50 billion. And and certainly the, the, the 50 billion includes water for tribes to help get them uh, drinking water. They don't have the infrastructure to even take advantage of some of the water rights that they have gotten settled. And tribes are playing a bigger role in the Colorado negotiations and elsewhere. So what impact are the rising role of uh, tribes having on management of water and ecosystems? Well, it depends on where you are. I think if you talk to the the folks leading the, the tribal initiative, they are not in these day-to-day discussions, and they definitely should be. But they definitely have a rising presence in the Colorado River Water Users Annual Conference and in the discussions outside the official dialogue. And that may be changing, so I may be a little bit out of date. In the case of individual tribes that have their water rights settled, and that's, you know, decades overdue, but it's happening. It's there are far more of them than there were 20 years ago when I was working in that area more uh, heavily. And the tribes can be real heroes, whether it's the Gila River uh, tribe, with uh, Chair Lewis, where they have uh, relationships with some of the communities around the, in the Phoenix area. You have the Colorado River Indian tribes, who I believe in the Inflation Reduction Act got some language change that would allow them to lease their water. And so you end up with sort of a happy medium where both the tribe can use its water rights for the protection of their homelands, which is what the language in the treaties 
said load those many years ago, even though it wasn't implemented until recently. And they can also lease that water to urban areas and others. And so they get some economic value from it finally. It's a, you know, you, you can't undo 150 years of broken promises, but it's a start. Another theme in the water space as we're looking ahead of the water year of 2023 is dam removal in the Pacific Northwest, allowing salmon and other species to fully use waterways they've inhabited for centuries. That's happening on the Klamath and other rivers. Uh, what other positives are we seeing when it comes to water supply and biodiversity and dam removal? Well, I think dam removal is a is a big deal. There's, there's sort of two levels to it. There's the Klamath, as you mentioned. There's the Elwha. There's a push to try and do it on the lower Snake river uh, uh so that it's a much more of a a discussion you also have uh, some really important dialogues including one that's been led by uh my colleague Dan Riker at Stanford to get hydropower operators river rafting and other environmental entities like American Rivers to come up with a way to manage the hydropower resources we have better to renew them to make them more fresh friendly to lessen their environmental impact, even if you don't take them out. Uh, so there's there's a lot going on there that has a lot of promise. You also have on the flip side and related, because it's taking out certain barriers, this whole uh, effort, you know, to, as we were saying, to restore floodplains and let the waters flow, to dissipate flood flow and to get groundwater, get, to allow water to sit long enough to infiltrate into groundwater where you get multiple benefits. I, I see this whole looking uh, at more nature-based solutions or living more in harmony with nature as an enormous movement that's getting some steam. Felicia Marcus, a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program. A pleasure to talk with you as always. Thank you. Thank you. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing with your friends, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up, we dive into new investments in climate tech and the prices of raw materials essential to the clean energy transition. Relatively speaking, even slightly more expensive wind and solar is still more in the money, more competitive than it's ever been with the options for fossil fuel fired power like coal and natural gas. That's up next. Today, we're diving into what climate stories we're tracking now. Another thing I'm wondering about is how much of a hurdle the electric grid is going to be in terms of getting us onto renewable energy. There are a lot of solar and wind projects being built, but they have to be connected to the grid in order to get the power from where it's being generated to the places that need it. And there are actually over 1,300 gigawatts of renewable energy ready to go but the average wait time to get connected is well over three and a half years. That's a good example of where we are now, important implementation at scale. There's a new acting chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. This obscure agency has a lot of power when it comes to power. They claim to be streamlining the permitting process for connecting new electricity generation. And the grid is actually something we'll explore in depth in a future Climate One episode. I talked with Nat Bullard, a senior contributor to Bloomberg NEF and Bloomberg Green, about the money and markets aspect of bringing new tools and technologies to scale. We talked about the prices of wind, solar, and batteries, which have been dropping for decades and recently ticked up. I asked him why that is and if he expects that's going to continue this year. Certainly. So the reasoning behind it, I think, would be fairly familiar to anybody who looks at the global economy right now. 
there is just general inflation. So that impacts the cost of wages, the costs of goods, and in particular for things like wind and solar, where the majority of their cost is up front and the majority of their cost is financed in, in capital markets by borrowing money, the rising cost of money makes them more expensive. But relatively speaking, they've moved much less than, say, the price of eggs or the price of gasoline as it moved in the United States uh, in the last calendar year. And there's also something important to notice that because this exists within this sort of broader backdrop of rising costs for everything, and in particular for the cost of hydrocarbons with things like a giant war in Europe, is that relatively speaking, even slightly more expensive wind and solar is still more in the money, more competitive than it's ever been with the options for fossil fuel fired power like coal and natural gas. Right. And so are we seeing increased demand as a, as a reason for spurring some of those price increases? There's a little bit of that, in particular in the solar sector in the last year, we have one of the periodic but also episodic shortages for key materials. Uh, there was a fairly tight supply for polysilicon, which is the metallic input for making most of the solar cells in the world. However, what's happening with that right now is that it is lurching from under to now very much oversupply, which is going to drive the price down by about 75% from its highs last year in August. The other thing is that the solar sector, despite taking up slightly in cost, had a really extraordinary year last year. Uh, installations were up double-digit percents year on year, uh, and this year are going to be up again double-digit percents year on year. Uh, the wind market is generally a little bit more stable. Um, in terms of its growth, but it's still very big. And the two of them together are really uh, entering this point where their, their new generation added from each technology is very significant on a global electricity level. And just to give a little example, so the amount, of, the amount of new solar and wind power that was generated last year, according to the International Energy Agency, is about as much power as France consumes, which is one of the 10 biggest electricity systems in the world. And this year, it's going to be about as much as Brazil consumes. And Brazil's the sixth biggest power system on Earth. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, it this... is very exciting. It's very <laughs> exciting. Um, it's a long time in coming in one sense. This is sort of the, you know, the steady march of, of exponential growth over time. But the most important thing about that is that if those growth rates for the new power coming from wind and solar are greater than the growth rate of demand in the global grid, then necessarily other things are starting to get pushed out of the global power mix. You know, and year on year, in particular coming out of the pandemic, this has been extraordinarily noisy. Power demand went way, way down. It then went way, way up on a year on year basis. We had both the biggest decline in coal-fired power globally in one year, and then the biggest increase in coal-fired power the next year. But wind and solar is really almost a straight lineup. And these two things already are more than 10% of the global power mix. You've outlined four major climate and energy areas to watch in 2023. So I want to kind of take each one in turn. We've already talked a little about polysilicon. Let's talk about lithium for energy storage and sort of what we've seen with those prices, ups and downs last year, and what you expect will happen this year. 
So last year was just was and and to some extent the year before was just like skyrocketing demand. Again, a case in which we have um, a near term shortage that it, in the market sense is only going to be solved by very high prices. Um, we have we had a lot of demand, a lot of contracted demand already to supplying lithium to uh, automobile makers in particular via the lithium ion batteries that are used in cars. Um, we have a lot of incipient demand in the future as the as the lithium ion battery becomes a prime mover of global transportation. And it takes a long time to add new supply to the mix. Uh, you know, a mine takes time. It takes time to plan and permit. Uh, it takes time to begin actual production. And so there's some sort of latency in the system on getting getting material to market. So prices were up multiple times in the last couple of years, but they seem to have top ticked, meaning that you know prices have sort of rolled over from their very high levels at the end of last year. And it's going to be very curious to see how that particular price trend develops. Prices are likely to stay elevated compared to where they used to be in the long run. But there's a there's a sort of saying that a lot of the analysts that I know say somewhat in jest, but with a kernel of truth, which is the cure for high prices is high prices. The thing that's going to bring us uh, lithium to the market is the fact that producers see a price advantage to take advantage of. I think also in the long run, this is slightly longer out, and it's going to be very interesting to watch. Will be the interplay between the products that exist in today's batteries, you know, by the hundreds and thousands of tons already, and what happens to them at the end of the life. And this is, it seems a little bit academic at the moment because the vast majority of the electric vehicles that have been made to date are still on the road. But in coming years, we'll have a time when, you know, once they're, they're no longer ideal for the automotive application, they could be used somewhere else in the grid. They could be recycled from materials. Or we may find that we're in a condition where we have plenty of lithium supplied. Yeah, and I mean, we've talked on the show about Redwood Materials, which is working with Ford to already begin this this process of building some kind of a recycling plant for their batteries, which is exciting. And we'll see if that industry kind of picks up. So let's turn now to investment in climate venture tech. And we want to note that you're a venture partner at Voyager, an early stage climate technology investor. You wrote that in 2022, climate tech saw a huge year-over-year increase in venture capital, with more than $70 billion invested from January to December. And then it's actually held steady at about 20 or 30% of the total venture investment over the last several years. So how should we interpret those numbers? This is a market that has, at, at the minimum assessment, has maintained the amount of capital flow to early stage companies in 2022 as it did in 2021. And also the general venture capital market has been way down, down more than I believe 30% through the first 11 months of last year. And so, uh, you know, if, if everything else is down, being flat can look like up, but it is really important to see that, you know, even as the, the larger venture market itself got multiple times larger, climate tech scaled accordingly. I think most of the people that have capital to allocate see climate tech as a durable theme in the longer run. And a lot of investors are seeing it as well, the early stage investors, as a place to put capital. What kinds of of projects are you seeing that are particularly exciting and, and that are receiving a lot of major investment? So the, I think that the, the things that are exciting are, first, 
technologies that build off of the abundance that's been created by wind and solar and lithium-ion batteries, uh, and as by, an ex- by extension, electric vehicles. So if we think of those as sort of technologies, I wouldn't call them solved as such, but they work very well. They're deployed at, at a relatively low cost and a very high volume. They're reliable. Um, they're making beginning to make a dent in the systems in which they operate. But then anything that's downstream of that, you know, managing managing solar power, determining what you might do with very abundant, low cost solar at certain times of day. That's one thing. The other is that people are starting to tackle we could call them chemistry problems and not just physics problems. We're trying to displace jet fuel. We're trying to displace petrochemicals. We're trying also to some extent to displace foods, you know, thing, things that have a high carbon footprint through the normal processes that that create our foodstuffs. These are going to be hard to do. We should be honest about it. They're going to be hard to do. They have rules, <laughs> like chemistry textbook type rules that you can't get around. Um, but it's really heartening to see that people find these solutions. And I think the most important lens on this is, um, and, I'm, and I'm channeling one of the partners at Voyager here, is that a lot of what we see companies doing is creating what will be a better version of what we have today, not just an alternative. Right. And that's that's true of consumer products. You know, the induction stove is ideally way better, you know, (laughs) than radiant electric or the old electric. And I also want to point out that there are some weights for these types of products right now. I mean, we're seeing long lines for EVs. And then there's also just a shortage of electricians to uh, come in and be able to do these electrification things that are incentivized with the Inflation Reduction Act. So are we seeing enough supply coming along in the future to meet this demand for these better products. So I'm 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 fairly confident that we will be able to meet our demand for induction induction cook stoves and heat pumps. These are fundamentally high volume, relatively mature technologies that are a matter of sort of latency in in and mismatch between current demand and current supply. I think actually what you what you just mentioned regarding skilled trade is probably a bigger issue. Because that does take time. And in this country, it takes certification. I would hope that there are people entering skilled trades who see this as as an opportunity. And I actually, I'm fairly optimistic that we will see that essentially on a generational basis. So if you're entering the trade right now, and if you're looking at it from a sort of trend aspect, what we think the future is going to look like, do you think it's going to be repairing 40-year-old boilers? Or is it going to be now, especially with the government there to help defray the cost of doing something new, is it installing something new? And is there an advantage to becoming the person who's smart on that? Like I'm real versed in heat pumps, tankless water heating, photovoltaic system, solar system on the roof, maybe integrating some EV charging on site. Right. So another item on many 2023 look-ahead lists, including yours, is implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, which we've been chatting about a bit. Aside from the consumer incentives that we've chatted about, what are some of the major areas you expect to see movement on this year? I'm going to answer that by rephrasing on where I'm worried that we won't see movement. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Where I'm worried that we won't see movement is speedy permission for things like transmission or for new manufacturing capacity. A lot of local opposition 
in the United States to doing large scale wind and in particular solar. Unfortunately, this has become rather political, despite the fact I would say that, you know, doing something on fallow land where you're going to receive a steady cash flow for decades should, in theory, be a good economic driver for development. You have a lot of local opposition. I think it's safe to say that from both uh, sides of the political spectrum in the United States, we've had a pretty thorough weaponization of planning and permission, and in particular, environmental permission processes over the past couple of decades. So honestly, that's my biggest concern, is that non-hard technical things get in the way of us meeting demand that manufacturers are ready to supply, that developers are ready to develop, that financiers are ready to finance. It would be a real shame. So fossil fuel companies are defending their revenues with aggressive action, and they're doing this in the realms of policy with state laws that preempt cities and counties from banning methane gas in buildings. They're doing it through communications, um, by casting doubt on batteries through front groups and in financial markets, attacking investments with environmental, social, and governance, or ESG filters. So I'm curious what your outlook is in terms of where oil and gas companies are having the most success defending their turf. I think this is a good question. It's a very, if I'm honest, it's a very American question. This isn't a discussion that any of my friends or colleagues in Europe ever have. It's a particularly political football here. And so in terms of real success, well, you could perhaps maintain the uh, fossil gas hookups in all households in the United States. But if people have demand for an induction cooktop, you cannot force them to use gas, for instance. And again, if you reach the point where, where you have substitution on the basis that the new option is simply better or perceived as better, then you can't do anything about that either. This is the same thing with electric vehicles. There, there won't necessarily be any way to fundamentally create or in, induce more demand in these mature sectors. You can perhaps fight as long as you want to sort of maintain your share of the mix. And look, in almost every assessment um, of the very long term, even very conservative projections like from the International Energy Agency will say that we're probably near the peak demand for hydrocarbons, at which point the, the competition becomes intra-sector it becomes which companies are best positioned in that particular production to maintain their their market share or take market share away from others as the market itself changes in fundamental volume. Which EV is better as opposed to an EV versus an internal combustion? And That's right. So last question here. In your 2023 predictions, you pointed to the U.S.'s rapid rise to a lead exporter of liquefied natural gas. Can you explain why this is important and how it could affect energy prices and emissions? This is a this is a very important thing that I feel like is a little bit under the radar if you are not in the power generation market and if you're not in the gas market. When I began working covering energy and climate, the expectation was that the US would be one of the biggest importers of liquefied natural gas. We would be taking gas from from the Middle East or even from Australia, and that would be part of our decarbonization effort. Technology is a wonderful thing, and the advancements in gas production in the U.S. that gave us this abundance of gas created a couple of things. First, a lot of it. Obviously, that's inherent in the phrase abundance, but also a very low cost and a very low price relative to the rest of the world. The challenge from a domestic perspective is that 
it's probably impossible in the long run to have something that has a domestic price. I'm just throwing out numbers here as, as an example. It has a domestic price of three and an international price of 15. And at some point when there's liquidity between them, those prices will start to come together. The export price will rise to meet what the expectation is overseas, and overseas prices will fall because there's greater supply coming in. And that's somewhat what we saw late last year in the, in the, in the U.S. gas market. So we saw natural gas, which had been a dollar and 63 cents per million British thermal units, the standard measure of gas. It was a dollar 63 cents in June of 2020. It was $8.81 in August of 2022. That's a lot to absorb if you're used to inexpensive natural gas. And the effect is too. One thing, it makes your power price go up. But the biggest, most durable thing in the long run is that it makes renewables with zero marginal cost look like a good opportunity. Nat Bullard is senior contributor at Bloomberg NEF and Bloomberg Green. Thank you so much for joining us on Climate One. Thank you. Coming up, a conversation with the co-vice chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Climate change is real, and these communities that are most vulnerable are the ones that are at the forefront. They're suffering the most. That's up next. Today, we're previewing some of the major climate topics we're watching right now. One area where we hope to see more progress this year is environmental justice. Finally, the Biden administration has made the biggest commitment to this ever and created a new advisory panel and Justice 40, an effort to assure that 40 percent of federal investments flow to disadvantaged communities. And the EPA is working on a lot of regulations that would reduce air pollution, though it's under a tight time frame to get them done. Those include tighter rules on particulate matter and new emission standards for heavy-duty vehicles, which could really improve the air for some impacted communities. There's also money for tribes to access water and infrastructure, money for Superfund cleanup. And whenever there's a lot of money thrown around, it raises the question of whether it will be distributed equitably or money will flow to power. And you chatted about this with Catherine Coleman Flowers, an accomplished environmental justice advocate who currently serves as co-vice chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. The Inflation Reduction Act includes 50 to 60 billion dollars for environmental justice projects. That's the biggest amount ever directed at communities that bear disproportionate burden of pollution. There's also $55 billion for water projects, something very important to you, and the bipartisan infrastructure law. As this money starts to be dispersed this year, what are you looking for? What is the potential and what are the potential pitfalls? Well, what I'm looking for is, is hopefully resolution of some long-standing problems that have occurred in this country in environmental justice and rural communities. I think the pitfalls are making sure that those communities have the technical assistance they need to get access to the funds and also to have the expertise they need on the ground for it to be used in the best possible way to solve the problems they're trying to resolve. Right. Getting these government grants can be difficult. Obviously, there's lots of uh, rules in place to make sure it's used properly, et cetera. And there can be a gap really between communities that need the money and how to get the how to <laughs> how to get it. Right. That has been a long standing gap. That's why we see communities that can afford lobbyists and have a staff of people that do grants and, and development and so forth. 
always get the funds and the ones that don't have it do not get the funds. So this administration was intentional about making sure that technical assistance is available. Uh, if the technical assistance is available and people have access to it, I think then we have more people to get access to the grants. If not, then, of course, we, we have to start all over again. Well, federal funds often flow through states to projects on the ground, though a study from the Environmental Policy Innovation Center at the University of Michigan found that states are less likely to tap federal funding for poor communities when they have large numbers of people of color. So what are the obstacles to getting funding to the people on the ground? Well, I think that the problem is, it's not so much just people of color. I think the big obstacle is that a lot of these states want to do what they want to do with the money. You know, I I come from an era where the only reason we even had any kind of affirmative action where people of color were allowed into certain jobs or any kind of uh, obstacles were removed was because of federal intervention. And likewise, I think that what we see being fought out across um, the country used to be in the South, but it's not just in the South anymore is this whole thing around state states' rights and the rights being able, the states being able to determine what they want to do with the money. And clearly, some of these states have had systemic issues that have existed for a very long time when it has, has come to, to spending federal funds, where the funds were going, and, and usually have enabled some of these problems to continue longer than they should have. And that's why it's important for activists on the ground to be engaged and involved. I think that's also why it's important for us to have the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Early in his administration, President Biden created the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council to ensure, quote, lived realities of environmental justice communities are heard in the White House and reflected in federal policies, investments, and decisions. As co-vice chair of that council, what concrete environmental justice outcomes has the Biden administration achieved so far? Well, there have been a number of them. One is Justice 40 which means that 40% of all of the investment will go to under-resourced and, and overburdened communities. The members of WeJack were very much a part of constructing uh, the policies around Justice 40. Uh, also, seeing that EJ communities have a chance to actually come and share what issues they're dealing with at the public hearings. That had never happened before. So people from around the country get a chance to talk about EJ issues that we may not even be aware of. And I thank the administration for that. We also thank the administration for having an interagency council that's working together to try to address EJ issues because oftentimes they're working in silos and we have a hard time breaking down those silos. But there's an effort to to really work to, to make all of this a reality. We also have a scorecard that will determine what when these funds are, are spent to be transparent and see where they are going. Uh, and there's a climate and environmental justice screening tool that will also determine which communities, based on certain indicators, will be part of Justice 40. And then recently, EPA just announced over $100 million in grants to environmental justice uh, communities. So for the first time, we, EJ has become a trending word <laughs> where it wasn't trending before. And a lot of people are hearing it for the first time. But those communities that have been living under the gun of all of these of pollution, whether or or lack of access to sanitation, or now seeing their desires for change being on the front burner instead of the back burner. 
And these things have been going on a long time. And should clarify that WEJAC is that White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council and EJ is Environmental Justice. So in your capacity as co-vice chair of that White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, what kind of advice do you give and how does that translate into action? Everyone that's serving on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council um, brings a different layer of, of experience. You know, some people are from rural communities, some people are from indigenous, indigenous communities. We have people from Puerto Rico. We have people from Alaska. You know, we have people from the Southwest, you know, New Mexico. People have seen a variety of, of, of environmental justice issues that have not been addressed. I mean, recently we had some people testifying uh, who had been exposed to the uh, the nuclear testing that was taking place in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and there's legacy cancers from that. Uh, so I get to learn a lot just by listening to all the different things that people are dealing with across the country. And what we try to do is to provide advice on, on how to, to get some resolution and to push the administration to do more than any administration has done before as we try to work on finding solutions to these problems and getting these communities the resources, hopefully, that they need. Some environmentalists are concerned that IRA funds can be used to expand freeways, LNG export ports, uh, which could increase pollution in nearby communities already burdened disproportionately by pollution. What areas do you see as most problematic? Well, I don't have all the answers when it comes to that, but I think that there there are some things that are problematic. But but in order to make sure that it works right or close to being right is that we have to have the activism on the ground. We have to have the involvement from people in those communities. And the way to get around that is making sure that they have a seat at the table and that there that there are community benefits planned that the community themselves are engaged in developing. And and that is the only way I think we can avoid the misuse or or the continuation of harm. During a flight on Air Force One, President Biden reportedly read a New York Times article about poor sanitation systems in Lowndes County, Alabama, where you've long been an advocate for environmental justice. Is that true? And what happened? And what would you like to see happen in Lowndes County? Well, uh, yes, it is true. And I think that that article made a difference. And we, we had a visit from uh, the the Secretary of Agriculture, the infrastructure czar, and the EPA administrator, where they announced the closing the wastewater first ever closing the wastewater access gap, uh, which is an effort to try to identify communities, rural communities predominantly that are having issues with wastewater. So, what do I like to see come out out of that? I like to see uh, these these communities that have never had equitable access to, to wastewater treatment to get it. I also like to see that communities of color and poor communities and rural communities are not just relegated to failing septic systems and not taken into account climate change and that climate change is real. And when we get more water, whether it's in California that just got a, a lot of rain or Alabama when it gets a lot of rain, these systems tend to fail. And we have to, I hope it out of this inspires a type of uh, innovation to deal with wastewater treatment that can make it accessible to people in rural and, and, and poor communities. So how would you grade uh, Biden's environmental justice record halfway through his term? Well, I have to give him an A. Uh, 
for effort, you know, because a lot of what is happening is history. It's never happened before. So it's not like, you know, when you have to measure it against very little happening and then you have a whole lot happening, but in in the in the scheme of things, there's a lot more that needs to happen. But I, I give the Biden administration a lot of credit because from the very beginning when I heard them say the word environmental justice, you know, early on in his administration to now, I think they've been trying to to really uh, put some action in there. And we got to continue to to have additional action. But I'm glad that we have an administration that's willing to listen. And hopefully we can push them to do more things than anybody else has done before and more than, than they've done up to this point. What else are you keeping an eye on for the coming year in terms of environmental justice policy and funding? Well, I would like to see not only people get funding, but to actually see some built projects that can have an impact on the people's lives and, you know, in terms of decreasing pollution, making sure that we reduce emissions, that frontline communities are not suffering from lack of water or contaminated drinking water to make sure that a lot of communities that right now do not have access to sanitation can flush their toilets and don't have to worry about seeing it in their backyards or front yards. Uh, a lot of these things we have to deal with. I mean, for me, I'm very concerned about climate justice. Personally, you know, I live in a community now that is in Tornado Alley. Recently, I spent most of the day when they had those rush of tornadoes in, in Alabama, I spend a great deal of that day in a, hiding in a closet. So climate change is real, and these communities that are most vulnerable are the ones that are at the forefront. They're suffering the most. We have found out, for an example, that some of the people in one of the counties next to Selma that had a tornado to come through there, actually they had probably more deaths in that area, in that county, than they did any other county in Alabama that day. Most of those people are living in mobile homes. We have to have more sustainable housing for people as climate change becomes a factor in changing how often we have these, these, these changes in the weather and, and having these, these really strong tornadoes. And one of the families I, I reached out to and I asked them, uh, did they have insurance? They said they could not get insurance on their mobile home because it was old. So that means that will limit the kind of help they can get to rebuild their lives. And again, we're going to find this more in poor communities and we're going to find this more in rural communities. And I find it hard to believe that anyone with a heart in Congress or in the states will not provide policy to protect all families, no matter where they live, whether they're in rural or urban communities, whether they're rich or poor, when they're dealing with these weather events. I have just one follow-up question on this kind of urban-rural situation. People who live in urban areas, cities, they pay taxes. They expect their trash to be cleaned up and the sewer to work. That's part of living in a city. People who live in rural areas um, often have septic and they have to operate them on their own. They own the septic. And if it overflows or the uh, needs service, they have to do it themselves or call somebody. It's not really a government responsibility, you know, septic systems on private property. So do you see that the same way or do you see that there's some expectation of sanitation and septic systems uh, should be taken care of by the government, even on private septic systems on private property? Well, you know, I have private property and I live in an urban area right now and my septic system is being taken care of by the city. But one of the problems with septic tanks 
there's nothing to encourage, no incentive for the manufacturers to improve because most septic systems, when they're sold to a person, a homeowner, there is no parts or service warranty to go with it. Even with when you buy a car, there are certain expectations of parts and service warranties to go with it. You don't feel like you have to go to the government to get them to do it. I was told by one engineer that I spoke with, the most septic systems are built with the most degraded form of cement there is. That's one problem. The second problem is, as a homeowner, when you buy the septic system, shouldn't a septic system be built to at least last as long as a mortgage? I mean, we have to change those paradigms because the way they are now, it is impacting public health. When it goes through our rivers and streams, it's not staying on private property. It's impacting all of us. So consequently, we should come up with another kind of paradigm where we make sure that sanitation is addressed and addressed equitably, no matter whether you're in an urban or rural area. And the other thing that we're finding that even in urban communities, Jackson, Mississippi is an example of that. Mount Vernon, New York is another example where every time it rains, they have sewage coming back into their homes. I've heard from people in the Bronx that talk about when they had rain events in New York, sewage flooding into their basements. That's a problem because the infrastructure is not, a, not built to deal with the current realities. Well, Catherine Coleman Flowers, founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice and co-vice chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. On this Climate One, we've been looking ahead at what lies in store for climate in 2023. We'll continue covering all these issues and many more on our show this year. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard and difficult and exciting and interesting, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes Sarah Catherine Coxon and Wensi Shada. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.